Gentlemen, turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 5. As the vocational Christian worker calls it, the Sermon on the Mount, or a mount. Way of introduction, let me note with you that much of what Jesus says runs counter to our natural instincts. In the sermon, he says, don't be angry with your brother. If your eye offends you, pluck it out. Don't resist evil. Love your enemies. And so forth. But as the blessed Son of God and the channel of blessing, he best can instruct us who the blessed of God are. And when we die, by way of reminder, Jesus will judge us, dividing the blessed from the accursed. Thus, in this sermon, we're forewarned. Who are the blessed and who are the opposite? Now, Jesus does not tell us in these three chapters how a person is saved, but rather he identifies for us who the saved are. He talks a great deal about the Mosaic Law. That too was given on a mountain, Mount Sinai. God gave the law from the mountain. Jesus expounds on it and gives it added insight from a different mountain. It's interesting that the last word in the Old Testament is cursed. The first word of our Lord in his sermon is blessed. God did not send his son into the world to curse it. He sent his son into the world to bless it. Now, in these opening remarks of our Lord, the remarks we're going to be looking at in our time together in these two sessions, there are eight beatitudes or blessings or happinesses, if you like to call them that. And I want to call to your attention that Christ identifies with us in our desire to be happy. Now, we're all familiar with Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, where the prophet identifies the three motivating factors of the world, power, wealth, and knowledge, or intellect. If you want to be successful as far as the world is concerned, this is where you go, in one or more of these three. But not so with the blessings of God. You see, nobody says that these three are ends in themselves. That I want to get money in order to be rich. Or I want power in order to be powerful. But rather, they are a means to an end. We perceive that power and wealth and intellect are the key to happiness. So we don't say that... I want to be happy in order to get rich. We say, I want to be rich so I can be happy. So Jesus identifies with us in our desire to be happy, but calls upon us to obtain the happiness by a route different from which the world suggests. So Jesus says that the man who 
wants to save his life must lose it. Now, everybody wants to save his life. Christ identifies with us in our instinct to self-preservation. But he merely asks us to find it in what we would call a counterintuitive way. We find it by losing it. So also, the Beatitudes. Jesus may, excuse me, people may seek happiness through power, through wealth, through the intellect or knowledge. But few would suggest that it might be obtained by the way Jesus suggests here in these verses. Now, all through these Beatitudes, Jesus has, or implies, I should say, that he has the authority to execute this cause-effect relationship. If you do this, this is the result. If you're poor in spirit, you inherit the kingdom of God. He says, I have the authority to tell you that that is so. Now, there's seven Beatitudes that deal with character. The eighth deals with the response of the world toward us because of our character. Attitudes with which he leads reveals a progressive humiliation and exaltation. As men sink in their own estimation, they they rise in divine blessing. By way of further introduction, note with me the present tense in all of these. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven, not theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. Not blessed shall be, but blessed are. So you see a great deal of paradoxical thinking in the Beatitudes. Poverty of spirit leads off. It closes with persecution. Poverty is the opposite of riches. And yet Jesus suggests that the man who inherits the kingdom of God is rich indeed. Flavor for where he's going in verses 3 through 12, which contain the Beatitudes, Jesus concentrates on character, the character of Jesus' followers. And then in 13 to 16, he talks about the influence that those followers have in the world. Salt, light, and so forth. Any comments or questions before we dive into the passage itself? Yes, Stan. Just a little clarification. In verse 6 and in verse 5. Uh, well, we're not there yet. We can't. We well, that. but you say it's all present tense and right. it shall be, so I just want clarification is are you saying that shall be is present tense well well, let's get to there we'll we'll talk about that okay yes just to make sure that I understood you uh, you said that uh, in the Beatitudes he's identifying for us who the saved are not how to be saved correct okay let's take verses 1 and 2 which is the setting And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying. Now note with me that there's a relationship between the multitudes and Jesus going up into the mountain. But we do not know, we cannot know what that relationship is. Now generally, in our mind's eye, we see the sermon given 
to the multitudes. But the truth of the matter is, the passage does not say that. We don't know whether the crowd followed or whether he went up by himself with his disciples. Did he go up to the mountain to get away from the crowd or to bring the crowd with him? Any answer you give is conjecture. And note, he says he went, he was set, he taught. The whole setting is one on Jesus' terms. He takes the initiative and those who wish may follow. Now it's interesting that in chapters 8 and 9, following the Sermon on the Mount, the people take the initiative. Here, Jesus takes the initiative. The people want physical healing. Jesus wants interchange. And that conflict and purpose follows Jesus throughout his ministry. Now, in verses 3 through 5, we have three Beatitudes all dealing with humility. So the first, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now I want you to note that in verses 1 through 12, Jesus gives no commandments. In each of these Beatitudes, we have a cause-effect relationship. Jesus makes a promise that if you embrace his premise, you get its conclusion. The promised blessing, by and large, not always, but by and large, is eschatological. That is, you pick it up in the future. With the possible exception of comforted in verse 4 and called the children of God in verse 9. So Jesus makes an offer. You don't have to buy it. You don't have to accept it. He's not commanding you to do it. But if you trust him for future gain, then you must do as he suggests, even though the price may appear quite high. He begins this opening salvo with poor in spirit. It's foundation, foundational for everything else that he has to say. It begins with poverty of spirit. Now, we don't know from this verse alone that only the poor in spirit gain the kingdom of heaven, but the rest of the scriptures teach us that that truly is so. If you are not poor in spirit, you have no hope of heaven. None at all. Now, note that Jesus does not say poor in circumstances. A man may be poor in circumstances and filled with greed. The man may be coming home from Las Vegas on Monday morning, poor in circumstance, but not poor in spirit. It's not those who are bereft of temporal goods that are here meant. Nor does Jesus mean poor-spirited. I remember that famous line in Shakespeare's Hamlet, where Hamlet says, Conscience doth make cowards of us all. But that's not what he's talking about here. Rather, he has in mind those who are humbled before God with a sense of unworthiness. Jesus says a person is blessed because in doing what he suggests, that person gains. In the first beatitude, he gains the kingdom of heaven. He gains comfort. He gains mercy. 
he gains the privilege of seeing God, and so forth. Now, if you don't consider these things gained, you're not, in, you're not motivated at all to do what he says. If you don't want the kingdom of heaven, then you have no motivation to be poor in spirit. So, let me note with you that this first beatitude is foundational to everything else that the Savior has to say. Poverty of soul is a prerequisite for a relationship with God. Now, the thesis of the Bible is that everybody is spiritually impoverished. Jesus is only addressing those who realize it. But pride blinds. Humility gives sight. The poor in spirit may be the only ones who know they are poor in spirit. But down deep inside, they know. They know. It's that brokenness. The contrite heart. Thus, only the poor in spirit consider the yoke of Jesus easy. Such people have no desire to be free. Bart? Well, is there any significance in Luke how it says just blessed are the poor and when it starts the Beatitudes when I studied this as I did I didn't try to cross reference it with the other passages in which the Beatitudes are given for two reasons one is well actually one primary reason I wasn't really sure I'm still not really sure whether the Luke passage is given at the same time the Matthew passage is given. It's not clear in my mind, Bart, whether or not some of the material in the Gospels is just something that Jesus said again at a different setting as opposed to the same setting. So I'd have to go back and i have to take a look carefully at what he says in Luke. And I can't answer that. But I do know that he says poor in spirit here. And I do know that the poor in circumstances don't go to heaven. It's the poor in spirit that go to heaven. That I do know. Good question. Any others? Yes. I'm curious as to why you made such a point. And you mentioned it twice about how he's saying... These, those are those who are served and not how to or those who are saved and not how to be saved it seems like if, if you're also saying this is prerequisite then this is also how to be saved can you make can you clarify that please yeah. I don't think Jesus objective in the Sermon on the Mount is to tell people how to get to heaven Jesus says I am the way to heaven you don't get to heaven by following the Beatitudes. You get to heaven because of Jesus. The guy who is poor in spirit by in and of itself does not gain heaven. But those who go to heaven are poor in spirit. Thus, if you are not poor in spirit, you have no hope of heaven. It's a one-way street. I don't know how ambiguous I am or 
whether you're shaking your head means yes, I understand, or I have the finished idea of what you just said. <laughs> but if not, let's go over it again. What do you think? I'm still confused. <laughs> All right. How does a man get to heaven? Through Jesus. Are we all in agreement on that? Jesus says, exclusively, I am the only way people get to heaven. Now, he may be wrong, but we believe he's right. And that's why we're here. Now, can a man get to heaven through Jesus if he's not poor in spirit? Yes or no? No. Can all people who are poor in spirit, independent of Jesus, get to heaven? No. So therefore we see that poor in spirit is not how a man gets to heaven. But we see that poor in spirit is a characteristic of those who are saved. Does that help? Yes, it does. Thank you. Good question. You got to remember, gentlemen, that my gift—I've told you before—I got two gifts. One is ambiguity, and the other is antagonism. <laughs> and the way that plays itself out is, half the people in the audience haven't got the finished idea of what I'm saying, and the other half are mad. <laughs> so, <laughs> any other questions? Alright? Verse 4. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, the etymology of the word mourn means to grieve, to sorrow, to lament. Thus, verse 4 ties in with verse 3. That is, the poor in spirit mourn. They're born because they are poor in spirit. An accurate evaluation of yourself leads to a holy grief. God promises to comfort the broken and contrite person. Also be mourning because, as we pointed out from the last time I talked to you, he sees the futility of life. He identifies like crazy with Solomon when Solomon says, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And he looks at life and he mourns over the nonsensical aspect of it. Or he may be mourning in the sense of Paul's statement in Romans 8. If you could look at it with me, I'll read verses 18 following. Romans 8, the great passage on assurance. At verse 18, Paul says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. 
For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our bodies. So the people who mourn in this verse fall, I believe, into the following categories. That is, they mourn over their own sin. They mourn over the sins of others. They mourn with those who mourn, as Paul says in Romans chapter 12. And they mourn with creation for the final consummation when God will terminate human history. Now, notice that the comfort is both present and eschatological. They shall be comforted. This is the reference you were talking about, Stan. It is present and it is future. Jesus says in John fourteen sixteen, And I will pray the Father, and He will give you another comforter, that He may abide with you forever. It's the same word. Comforter. Paraclete. Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is the comforter. Those who mourn are assured of the presence of the Spirit of God in their lives. This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit that Jesus promised His disciples and that we inherit with the new birth. Now we will, in all probability, see the fulfillment of Romans chapter 8 only after God terminates human history. Any questions or comments on this? Yes. Is, is the morning uh, that he's referring to here at all related to just someone mourning for the grief, uh, lost, uh, loss of a loved one or something like that? Or is this just the mourning for the sinful nature that you're referring to? Right. This is not a mourning over temporal loss. It's a mourning because you realize that you're poor in spirit. Any other questions? Yes, Mark. Would that be that uh, mourning for the eternal loss? No, I think it's mourning because you realize that by nature you are the enemy of God. Apart from Jesus Christ, you are without hope. You mourn because you look at the world and you say, it does not make sense. It's like 500 pieces of a puzzle sitting on the table, no two of them together, and you haven't the finished idea how to begin to put them all together. That's the mourning. Oh, God help me. Robert, you had a question. Yes. Can you explain the, the morning over creation again, please? Yeah. Paul says that sin has cosmic effects. That there is no such thing as a private sin, even in your mind or your thought life. 
is that when Adam and Eve sinned, it influenced adversely the whole created order. And that God keeps the created order in a state of mourning as a token of assurance to you that what you see in a decayed world is not natural but unnatural. And it fills you with hope. And so God says that he will keep the created order in that state until the final consummation at the end of the age. Question back here. I was just going to ask how, how from the context we can tell that that's the type of mourning that, that we're speaking of and not the, the temporal loss of, of, say, a loved one. How, how do we know that, that's, that that does not apply? I think it does not apply because of what the rest of the Scripture says regarding that. I think that's it's the mourning that follows. I'm suggesting to you that these are progressive. That begins with the poor in spirit. It's followed with the mourning and goes to the meek. And God does not promise comfort everybody who mourns. Okay, good. Was there any others? Okay, let's take the next one. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now again, the etymology of the word meek means one who is gentle, mild, soothing. One who is in a position of a servant. One who feels that he is in a servant relationship to God and who subjects himself to God quietly and without resistance. Thus, Jesus is our model. Now, it's possible for Jesus to be meek because Jesus was in perfect control. Nothing slipped out of his control. So he could afford it. We can afford to be weak because Jesus is in control and he is our life he is our protector he assures us that there are no accidents that he superintends everything that comes into our lives now Nobody becomes meek in the sense that Jesus is talking about it here unless he first is poor in spirit and mourns. The proud, self-righteous man can never meet the Savior's qualifications for meekness. Now, this meekness, I suggest to you, is not cowardice. Rather, it manifests itself in at least the following ways. Number one, Deference to God and His will. Number two, not easily offended. And number three, he does not compete with his fellow man for the limited resources, knowing that such competition is covetousness. By way of illustration of the third, I've got a good buddy. Many of you have met him. 
He's a, uh, a physician in, in, in Hong Kong, Cedar Wing Hong. And Cedar's um, one of my heroes. We've lived together. And uh, he's a great brother in Christ. And when he was at the university, he's at the University of Hong Kong uh, in their department of, I don't know what, infectious disease, I guess. And he was telling me about how that as he was trying to give his life away to people, like Kelly was talking to us about it last night, that uh, everything was going very well until the head of the department's job opened up. And then all of a sudden there was a spirit of competition among all the physicians that were in the department. And his relationship with them just changed instantaneously. So he would go to a, one of the doctors and he'd say, Listen, would you like to be the head of the department? And the guy said, Yeah, I really would. He said, Well, I'll, let me see if I can help you. Because it will make a difference to me. And the moment that the rest of the physicians knew that he was not in the competition, then things began to settle down a little bit. <coughs> Yeah, the second one was he's not easily offended. He defers to the will of God. I'm sorry. Oh, and the third one, he does not compete for others with others for the limited resources of the world because he knows that such competition is just another word for covetousness. Now, gentlemen, the first two Beatitudes deal with a deficiency. This one deals with something supplied. Now, this is not just a meekness toward God, although certainly that's there, but it is also a meekness in the interpersonal relationships, as described by Sito. For example, a hermit living in the Colorado Rockies 150 years ago, you would not call meek simply because he's not relating to anybody else. You have no idea what he is. The Apostle Paul had the thought of the flesh. We don't know exactly know what that is. He says over in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, For this thing I have sought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And then in verse 9 he says, But he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. As I was studying that, it occurred to me that men want to appear weak and be strong. God wants us to appear strong and be weak. So, if a man asks you, can you do whatever the task is, you want to feign meekness. Well... Well, possibly, you know, I'm certainly not the best. But when it comes time to perform, you want to be the best. So, we love our athletes when they feign incompetence and then go out and perform with excellence. But Jesus says that what I want you to do is I want you to appear strong and be weak. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Paul says, I want to warn you, if I have to come to you face to face, God help you. 
I'll come with a rod, and you'll wish you had never met me. That is not neatness. As the world sees it, but Paul says, I'm nothing. I am nothing. Now, gentlemen, only the secure can be meek. Insecure people have no capacity for meekness. Now, let me remind you that if you agree with Beatitudes 1 and 2, that is, if you are poor in spirit and you mourn over your brokenness, and you realize before the living God that you truly are nothing, then you will not be offended when people agree. <laughs> Is that not true? That's the point. Therefore, we say that some people appear weak, but it's merely an untested weakness. They have not been taken through, as Gail was talking about, the furnace of affliction. So you're willing to be weak or meek, I should say, for two reasons. Number one is you have no vested interest in the world system. For you, like the heroes of the book of Hebrews, look for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. That's why, writing to the Hebrews in chapter 10, he said, For you had compassion of me and my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. And you are meek because you are confident in God's ability to defend you. Moses is called the meekest man on the face of the earth. And he said in Exodus 14, 14, when they had their backs to the, river, to the, the Red Sea, the Lord shall fight for you, and ye shall hold your peace. Meekness, gentlemen, is the product of believing that God can defend you better than you can defend yourself. Now I ask myself, why would one who has inherited the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven in verse 3 want to inherit the earth here in this verse and like you I laughed when I thought about it in Revelation chapter 21 verse 1 he says I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and earth have been passed away. You see, gentlemen, when God recreates, He will recreate not only a new heaven, but He will recreate a new earth. And when Jesus gave this sermon, He gave it to Jews. And the Jews did not distinguish between the temporal and the eternal like we do in the New Testament. Because for them, the temporal was eternal. Abraham, their father, said, God said to Abraham, I will give you this land. How long? Forever. And the Jews believed him. And that is why, even to this day, the hope of Israel is in the land. 
The Old Testament teaches clearly a material recreation. And so in talking to the Jews, he said, you will inherit the earth. Now for you and me, in all probability, at least if you're like I am, I have no desire to return to the earth when I die. I'm not sure where I want to go. I want to go to be with God, but I don't think of being with God here on earth. For the Jew, it is different. Any questions or comments? Yes, John. We, we need to be meek, but we still can be strong. Is that correct? Because um, we derive strength from the Lord Jesus and through God. Right, but not in ourselves. That's the key. Not in ourselves. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. Paul said, with Jesus, there's nothing I cannot do. What about Nehemiah 8.10? The joy of the Lord is my strength. Right. It's through Jesus and through, to, through God. Jack Howard, back there in the corner. Uh, two questions. Any chance that inheriting the earth is during the millennial reign? Yes. Second yes. question is, uh, as a general contractor, I compete against other general contractors for jobs, and I was having a hard time acting like CEDO. Um Am I supposed to? I would say, Jack, it depends who in your mind's eye gives you those contracts. It's the same with any man in sales. If you, if you look to your own prowess to gain your standard of living, I don't think there's anyone in the world you can be meek, as Jesus talks about it in this verse. But Cito basically walked away from the competition and I can't. You can't. I, have no, I get fired instantaneously if I walk away from the competition. Okay. Well, so then what you're saying to me is that you are in a contractual arrangement with your employer but you yourself are not in competition. That's correct. That's, That's the distinction? Of course. Okay. It's got to be. Well, <laughs> gentlemen, now gentlemen, let me let, let me say, don't, don't construe anything that I have said this morning to mean that Jack is not still in trouble. <laughs> yes. Go ahead. Try it again. For those for those of us who have a tendency to be proud, how do we become meek? By realizing that you've got nothing to be proud of. <laughs> yeah. 
who am I? I'm nothing. I'll tell you, gentlemen, when I was a young man, I had a terrible inferiority complex. So I went to a psychiatrist for a number of meetings. And after a while, he came to me and says, Henriksen, he says, you don't have an inferiority complex. You are inferior. (laughs) Chuck. inheritance here that has to do with peace on earth? The peace that you feel? Well, we're going to talk about the peacemaker and the peace that comes with that. So this isn't a, it doesn't tie back to I Psalm 3711? So. No, I don't think so. I could be wrong, but I don't think so. Yes? Well, since you've added a little laughter, uh, I had a question on the previous point. Uh, in our society, uh, we hear a, a phrase mentioned, and I'd like you to comment on it. When you said, no sin is private, uh, we hear a phrase called victimless crime. And I'd like you to just comment on that. Well, biblically, there are no accidents, there are no victims, and there's no private sin. Your sin has cosmic consequences. And if you think it is otherwise, you kid yourself. But, let it be noted, we do kid ourselves. Any other comments? Okay. Verses 6 and 7 deal with righteousness and mercy. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Now, I thought about this as I was meditating on it. Adam and Eve, before the fall, had perfect righteousness and were filled with perfect blessedness. But according to verses 10 through 12, which we're coming up against in the next session, the product of righteousness is persecution, as was the case with Jesus. So, perfect righteousness, it seems to me, in an alien world, produces something very different from a state of blessedness. Thus, the blessedness that he's talking about here has to be, in some sense, eschatological. Only, gentlemen, only when we are in a perfect environment will perfect righteousness bring blessing. Just as perfect righteousness is something the follower of Christ longs for, but does not attain this side of heaven, so also the accompanying blessing. Now, God defines what righteousness is. We don't get to define that. And therefore, we hunger and thirst after what He says, not what we think. Now, if you want to find out what righteousness is, let me suggest the following path. First, begin with the golden rule. Do to others as you want others to do to you. Now, gentlemen, that is the heart of all morality. And it is the basis by which God will judge all men. 
do you do to other people what you want to be done to you? If not, you cannot call it righteous. From there, I suggest you go to the Scriptures. Does the Bible address the issue? You cannot violate the Bible and call it righteousness. Period. Thirdly, you go to the law of the land. Because the law of the land, oftentimes, as is in the case of our country, has laws that are different from the laws of the Bible. But the Bible is very clear on the subject and says that we are to be in submission to the authorities. Romans chapter 13. Therefore, to be righteous is to obey the law of the land. And lastly, righteousness cannot be obtained by the violating of your conscience. It's got to be the agreement of your conscience. You cannot violate your conscience and say it is right. Now, I want to make some observations, some general observations. The two most urgent human needs that a human being has are used to articulate what Jesus has in mind here. Hunger and thirst. I remember talking to Gail Jackson about his eldest son, Scott, who was going through ranger training. And when he was out in the wilderness, uh, he had to live off the land and he got very, very hungry. And he said that his desire for food overwhelmed every other appetite in his life. He lost his appetite for sex, for everything else. He was consumed with the desire to be fed. And Jesus says, when you've got that kind of desire for righteousness, then you're on the right track. You see, these two appetites concentrate on one thing only. Not on food, not on money, not on power, but on righteousness. So those who are preoccupied with the cares of this world will never be able to embrace this beatitude. Now, there's a paradox here. To the degree that you become satisfied, you're no longer hungry. But he who hungers and thirsts after righteousness shall be satisfied. Now, let me make one other observation, then we'll close it off and pick it up the rest of it in the next hour. And that is, I want to note with you that righteousness is an uncommon appetite. Very very few men have it. Most do not hunger and thirst after it. Now, it occurs to me that the truly hungry will never pass up on a meal. And if you're really hungry, you don't really care whether there's linen on the table or whether the china is chipped. You've got one thing in mind, and that is getting the food from that plate to your belly. And that's the question you have to ask yourself regarding righteousness. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity, says the scripture concerning our Lord Jesus. Now, Art, I'll pick you up at the very beginning of the next session, but it's exactly straight up and I will quit here. Thank you. <laughs>